Could family genetics be a reason that no matter what we try, we still can't lose the fat and inches from our problem areas? To learn more, we spoke to Dr. Brian Strand from Sonobello. While some people can eat everything and stay thin, others diet and exercise daily and still pack on fat and inches to their problem areas. It's not your fault. It can be genetics. If you struggle to lose the fat from your tummy, love handles, thighs, and back, you're likely battling your family genetics. The good news is we have an answer. Sonobello uses a remarkable technique called microlaser fat removal. In one comfortable visit, the fat in your hardest places to lose is gone permanently. Stop wrestling with your family genes and lose the fat permanently. And right now, you can save $250. The results are life-changing. Do this for you. Don't wait. Visit sonobello.com slash save. sonobello.com slash save. sonobello.com slash save. The Exxon Radio Show with Rob McConnell is largely an opinion talk show. All opinions, comments, or statements of fact expressed by Rob McConnell's guests are strictly their own and are not to be construed as those of the Exxon Radio Show or endorsed in any manner by Rob McConnell, Relmar McConnell Media Company, the Exxon Broadcast Network, its affiliated networks, stations, employees, or advertisers. All Hit Radio To the X Zone, a place where fact is fiction and fiction is reality. Now, here's your host, Rob McConnell. Welcome back, everyone. This is the X Zone. I am Rob McConnell coming to you from our broadcast center and studios in Crystal Beach, Ontario, Canada. If you'd like to send me an email, exxon at exxonradiotv.com on all social media sites, TV, And we're coming to you tonight on the Exxon Broadcast Network, Talkstar Radio Network, Mutual Broadcast Network, and our family of broadcast affiliates right around the world. For more information on the Exxon TV channel that is exclusive to Simul TV, visit www.simultv.com. My guest this hour is William J. Federer. He is a nationally known speaker, best-selling author, and president of AmeriSearch, Inc., a publishing company dedicated to researching America's noble heritage. Bill's American Minute uh, feature uh, radio show or radio feature is broadcast daily across America by the Internet. His Faith in History television airs on TCT Network on stations across America via DirecTV. His website, AmericanMinute.com. First of all, Bill, welcome back to the show. And these must be very interesting times for someone with your interest in American history. Uh, it is. And uh, I tell people history is not prophetic, but it is predictive. So past behavior is the best indicator of future performance. And uh, so when you look at the, the past, Winston mm-hmm. Churchill said, the further back you look, the further forward you are likely to see. So it gives you a trajectory. And um, anyway, so I've written several books and uh, I think the listeners uh, may might find them interesting. Bill, what is your take on what is going on in the political realm in the United States these days? Um, well, one of the things uh, that uh, in studying history, um, the, uh, the most common form of government is a king. Power wants to concentrate into the hands of one person, mm-hmm. um, sort of like the Lord of the Rings, where, you know, <laughs> the, the, the ring wants to be found and yeah. power wants to concentrate. Um, I, uh, I tell people, if, if you were the king... Uh, and you had a sister that you really loved, and she got married, had a kid. Now he's a teenager. He's hanging around the wrong friends. He's drinking and partying, and he hits someone with the car and kills him. Mm-hmm. And now this teenager is facing manslaughter charges, mandatory prison time, and your sister comes begging to you and says, you're not going to let my little Johnny get locked away, are you? Uh, what are you going to do? You're going to want to help your sister out, right? Well, of course. Let the kid off the hook. And um, and so it, by doing that, if you were the king, uh, mm-hmm. you would be setting a precedent that if someone's friends with the king, they're more equal. If they're not friends with the king, they're less equal. And if they're at one, wanting to point out your favoritism, you're going to be tempted to want to shut them up. And so it, it turns into this pyramid structure to society, and it keeps repeating itself um, from the family level to a 
tribal level, to a gang level, uh, ultimately to a king and to an empire. And um, the king of England ended up being the most powerful king on planet Earth. The sun never set on the British Empire. He had Canada, America, British Guyana, Barbados, Jamaica, you know, Bermuda, mm-hmm. uh, you know, Sandwich Islands, uh, India, you know, and and um, and he, in a sense, was like a one world government guy, like a globalist. And America's founders decided to break away and flip it and make the people the king. So it's a polarity change in the flow of power, set it top down, it's bottom up. Uh, and um, so so that was the premise upon which America was founded. We found, though, uh, a, a couple of my books. Uh, one book I wrote is called Change to Chains. It's an overview of, of world history and how power wants to concentrate. And, um, and, and the idea is that in times of crises, people panic and give up their freedom for security. And uh, again, I go back uh, historical. The first invention ever was the plow. Even the Bible talks about Cain being a tiller of the soil. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and then people started hitting each other with them and they turned into weapons. And then people felt insecure on their farms and they gravitated together for protection and they formed the first cities. And you get people together. Someone's a little better at knowing how to fight than the rest. And everyone says, hey, uh, you be our captain. And you fight. You live. That is a good thing. But then this captain has kids and grandkids, and they claim to be an elite class, a special family, right? Everybody wants to butter up to him. And before you know it, you got a, a political boss, a political family, a, a gang, you got a king. And so these kings would rule their cities, and then they would begin to conquer several cities and turn into kingdoms, and then conquer more areas and turn into empires. And, and so the idea is that um, in times of crises, people give up the freedom And then, since this is an observable phenomenon in human nature, there are some political philosophers throughout history that have decided to speed it along by intentionally creating crises so that people will give up their freedoms. So you got Machiavelli and Hegel and Karl Marx and Saul Linsky, and they all have studied how to intentionally create crises to cause people to panic, to give up their freedoms uh, in exchange for a promise of security. And, uh, and then when that happens, it flips. Instead of a bottom-up type of form of government, it flips to a top-down. And you're, you're back to the king scenario. I, I know I'm sort of summarizing things in a fast manner, but um, that's uh, the premise of uh, a couple of my books um, that uh, I tell people. History gives us this perspective. Um, if I put a dot on a page and I t- ask you a question, where's the next dot going to be? Well, it could be 360 degrees. You don't really know. But if I can show you all the dots preceding that dot, and then I ask you, where's the next dot going to be? You're like, well, you know, I could take a ruler and I could put it up here and plot. And and the next dot might be up in this corner of the page. If all somebody knows is the present, they have no predictive ability of what's going to happen next. But if you can tell them, okay, people in the past in this scenario have acted this way. And in a similar scenario, they've acted this way and this way. And then all of a sudden you say, okay, we're in this particular scenario. Uh, You know what? I I think that we we may replicate. So people say history repeats itself. No, human nature repeats itself. History is just the record of that. And the only difference throughout history is military advancements improve. So uh, a a king can kill more people. Uh, They go by different names. They can go by Chairman Mao or a Stalin or, you know, a, a comrade or, or whatever. But, but the person that ends up consolidating the power now has new weapons. So in, instead of Cain killing Abel with a rock, now they're killing with bronze weapons or iron weapons or a phalanx spear that the Greeks had or a scimitar sword that the Muslims had or gunpowder that the Chinese invented. The weapon changes, but it's that same selfish fallen human nature that you observe on a playground where, one kid ends up being the bully hogging the ball or a junior high girl's click or one girl's the diva. And if you're not her friend, you're ostracized, you know. And um, and so so history repeats itself. But the difference throughout time is that military advancements improve and technological advancements improve. So you can track more people. Right. And so instead of Augustus Caesar wanting to have a worldwide tracking system called the census, now it's a tracking system using computers and using technology and, uh, you know, social credit score systems and, mm-hmm. and 
so forth. But it's that same uh, control uh, structure. Um, it's just that the same fallen, selfish human nature that was exhibited in the first chapter, you know, first of the Bible where Cain kills Abel. But now it's just magnified through technology and, and it um, uh, impacts. Uh, I tell people that, you know, that here's the Tower of Babel, um, the, the Nimrod and, and Josephus. A uh, Jewish commentator wrote the Jewish history when the Romans destroyed uh, Jerusalem. And uh, so Josephus goes through this and he said Nimrod wanted to build his tower so high that if God destroyed the world again with a flood, he could survive on top. So it sort of had this defiant in your face attitude toward God. And Nimrod made everybody in, in the city of uh, Babylon um, bake bricks and bring them. And if they didn't, he'd kill them. So it had this oppression over man. Defined against God, oppression over man. And the Bible story says how God confuses the languages and the people scatter. But it's almost like every generation since has tried to rebuild the Tower of Babel but, and concentrate power. And with new technologies and with new weapons, uh, it goes from a city to kingdoms to larger kingdoms to global you know, dimensions to it. Uh, and so anyway... Um, so, so in your opinion, Bill, should we look at the Internet and uh, the social media platforms as weapons? Uh, yeah, they can be used for good or bad. Um, and, and that's where you have, um, uh, oh, even, you know, Lord Acton, different philosophers have said war uh, is waged through fraud and force. Uh, fraud means that in, in war you want to deceive your enemy. You want to trick them. Mm -hmm. uh, Sun Tzu, Art of War, 6th century B.C., he says the best general is the one that basically psychs his enemy out and thinks that he makes his enemy think that he's more powerful than he is. And the enemy surrenders without even fighting. Good so it's psychological, a psychological yeah. aspect to the warfare um, that, uh, you know, sixth century BC talks about this. So how do you psych your enemy out nowadays? Well, you know, in world war two, it was flying an airplane over and dropping pamphlets yeah. out. Uh, where people would read it and these little pamphlets say, you already, you've already lost, just you know, surrender, and it would mess with their minds. Mm -hmm. uh, but now it's gone on to Internet, and whoever controls the message of the Internet and media and radio and so forth. Um, and, and I have a chapter in my, I did a new book, it's called, called Socialism, Socialism, The Real History from Plato to the Present. And um, I have a whole chapter on uh, the importance of controlling the information. And uh, so in republics uh, or democracies, the people are in charge. Right. Uh, the difference between the two is uh, democracy, Athens, they had 6,000 citizens. Every citizen had to be at the market every day to talk politics. And if you didn't show up for a couple of days, you didn't know what was going on and you were called an idiotus. <laughs> um, but it could only be as large as a city because logistically you could not travel to the city every day if you live far away. So that's why Greeks just had city-states. But in a republic, you could take care of your family and your farm, and you had someone in your place go to the market every day and talk politics. They are your representative. So the REP in republic is the REP in representative. So you're still the king. You're just ruling through these representatives. And um, So basically ruling by, uh, ruling by proxy. Correct. Yes. Okay. And um, so, so in democracies and republics, uh, the people are in charge, but the people can only make decisions based on what they know. And so now you develop a whole system of swaying people through information, through emotion. Uh, this goes back to Athens. Mm -hmm. So um, they had theater. Uh, if there's a king, maybe a Chinese emperor. Uh, you know, these emperors in China would have 2,000 concubines and they would have the Mandarin eunuchs that would keep their harems. And if you wanted to have an agenda and pitch your plan to the emperor, you would have to bribe the Mandarins with money or favors or something to for them to arrange for you to have an audience with the emperor. But in Athens, they didn't have an, an emperor or a king. It was the people. If you have an agenda, how do you pitch your agenda to 6,000 citizens? Uh, well, that's when they invented theater. 
they would get the whole city together and they would put on plays, comedies, tragedies, satires, where they would ridicule and buffoon certain points of view and honor and extol other points of view. And you would leave the theater saying, I don't want to be like that poor guy that was ridiculed to death. And the other guy, he was noble. He was, you know, uh, upstanding. And from that time till now, theater has always been political in a country where it's the people that make the decisions. All right, Bill, stand by. We've got to take a commercial break. Exonation. William Federer is our special guest this hour, and his website is AmericanMinute.com. And Bill and I will be back on the other side of this break as the Exxon continues with yours truly, Rob McConnell, from our broadcast center and studios in Crystal Beach, Ontario, Canada. Don't go away. Welcome back, everyone. Bill Federer is our special guest this hour, www.americanminute.com. If history repeats itself, Bill, as so many people say, and we've certainly seen enough examples of this in, in our lifetimes, this is the first time in American history that a president has been impeached twice while in power. Kind of says to me that history sometimes creates itself before it repeats itself. Yeah. Um, so we uh, go back uh, in American history mm-hmm. and we see how there's been uh, a gradual concentrating of power away from the people in times of crises. Uh, we have uh, Thomas Jefferson to prove the Louisiana Purchase. Uh, but he didn't have authority to do it. It was the Senate that was supposed to make the treaties. But it was such a good deal, uh, he did it, and the Senate sort of rubber-stamped it. It was a little usurpation. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then you have Lincoln during the Civil War. He really concentrated power, and he outlawed the states from issuing their own currencies, and he issued the greenback, which turned into the dollar bill. Um, He uh, was going to arrest the entire Maryland legislature so they couldn't vote to secede. Uh, he instituted the first income tax. There was no income tax before Abraham Lincoln. Oh, he's the guy a, to blame, huh? Yeah, he was the emergency effort to get money to fight the war. And and um, anyway, uh, and then you had Woodrow Wilson, and he concentrates power, pushes through uh, uh, the income tax again. It was repealed after Lincoln, but Woodrow Wilson brought it back. Um, and he, uh, you know, concentrated power, removed the 17th mm-hmm. Amendment, or, you know, put through, which took electing senators out of the state's hands and so forth. Um, and then he, you know, uh, wanted to create the Federal Reserve Bank and put us into World War One and concentrate a lot of power. Uh, and then Franklin Roosevelt, he concentrated a whole lot of power with all of his New Deal programs uh, during the Great Depression. And, and then Lyndon Johnson concentrated power with his welfare, Great Society welfare state. And then even President Bush concentrated power with uh, his NSA and the Patriot Act so the government could track everybody and read their emails and all their credit card purchases and so forth. And so we see this power concentrating more and more and more into the hands of the government. And uh, it's been nicknamed the deep state. (laughs) And there there are people on both sides of the aisle. Uh, The dilemma is that uh, our system means you need to run for office, right? which means you need money. Uh, and I go through a, you know, used to be, uh, there was what's called, uh, the congressional ratios, one congressman for every 30,000 people. And that's the way it was up until, um, uh, 1911, uh, when they, when they filled up the seats in the, the house of Congress. And so they said, well, we don't want to build a new building. So instead of one congressman for every 30,000 people, let's just do a census every 10 years and take the population of the country and divide it by how many seats are in this building. 
435. And so now it's one congressman representing 700,000 people. Wow. There's no way that you can shake that many hands. And so now it's turned into running for Congress means you got to go to people with money and, and basically kiss their ring. And uh, they'll give you money if you do what they say. Used to be before the 17th Amendment, Woodrow Wilson, U.S. senators were elected by their state legislatures. So all you got to do is be a good state rep. Mm-hmm. But once it switched to being popularly elected, that means you got to raise millions of dollars to run for a statewide Senate seat, which means you have to go to the people with the money and basically agree to push their uh, agenda and um, in, in, in exchange for the money. And so uh, now even the Bible talks about beware of taking gifts because they'll turn the heart of the person that receives them. And so you got all these different Congress and the senators that they'll give really good speeches, but push comes to shove. They're going to do what uh, the George Soros's and the people that um, that have the money do. And um, and so, again, this is called the deep state. Um, every now and then you have a leader that wants to disrupt this. Um, and he gets vilified and impeached and or assassinated. You know, when um, John F. Kennedy, in one of his last speeches, uh, he was wanting to basically expose uh, them and uh, to, um, you know, uh, and then even Dwight Eisenhower in his last speech before leaving office, he warned of what he called the deep state. But but he used the term military industrial complex. Um, but it's this group of insiders that want to keep their job and uh, they want the government to get bigger and bigger. And uh, they view anybody that wants to reduce the size of government as a threat. And um, anyway, uh, that uh, hmm. is um, what we're sort of seeing right now is uh, tr- Trump's been somebody who's been disrupting their, their globalist plans. And um, they obviously don't like that. And they've been, uh, you know, trying to stop that. Uh, when you look at China, yeah. gee, and, and all the, the the infiltration that they've done into Hollywood, the media, and you know Disney. And, I mean, they, they've gotten involved in all kinds of you know banking and uh, and um, in in politics. I mean, here's uh, you know McConnell's wife is uh, from China. Uh, Diane Feinstein, her limo driver for. You know, a decade has been a Chinese person. That, uh, mm-hmm. And then we got a congressman, Sewell, uh, Selwell, and it's it's documented. He's yeah. been sleeping with a, a woman who's known to be a Chinese spy. Um, you know, part of our brain wants to say, oh, no, let's just go back to life as usual. Uh, the other part of the brain is, no, there are people that have been lusting for power for 6,000 years. You know, at least that's when writing was invented that we mm-hmm. have record of. And um, and with the advances in technology, uh, they're just wanting to use those uh, for their advantage. And, and there is a ultimate goal of world control. All right. So when we look at uh, what Biden and a number of his of his uh, cronies are saying, we're looking at more or less of a socialistic government or a socialism coming into the United States. How do you think that this is going to affect the balance? Um. It, Tremendously, yeah. It'll it'll change not just America but the world. Um, now, I, I in my book on socialism, I, I go back to Plato, mm-hmm. and a, a little bit of background helps give focus and understanding uh, to what's going on. And if you like, I could go through that. Yeah, please. Uh, briefly. Um, so, 380 BC, Plato's in Athens, and he is a philosopher. He writes in passing in a couple of his works of Atlantis, this highly structured civilization on an island, very organized, and it sinks in the sea. Whether it existed or not, uh, he thought it did. Some think it could have been Santorini, mm-hmm. um, which is an island in the Mediterranean that all that's left of it is the rim of a volcano. Uh, I've been there, you know, went on a cruise in the Mediterranean and you stop off. It's, it's an adorable place cause you have to, you know, go up this side of it. It's really, you know, it's road that winds back and forth and, you, and the whole city's along this rim and every building is painted white with a blue roof. It, it's just charming. But anyway, it used to be a volcano and it's not there anymore, which means there must've been some super massive explosion that would have sent a tsunami all across the Mediterranean and, 
would have sunk uh, lots of things. Anyway, whether Atlantis existed or not, Plato believed it did. And um, he refers to it as the ideal structured society. And Plato considered a democracy an unstructured society. Demos means people, crossing means rule, and the people rule. And the chief characteristic of a democracy is tolerance. Everybody tolerates each other. It's wonderful. Then they tolerate people that are a little bit off. Then they tolerate people that are a lot off. <laughs> till finally they're tolerating crooks and crime and fraud and broad daylight looting. And nobody does anything about it. And then it begins to turn into chaos. And the people begin to say, can't someone come along and fix this mess? And that's when somebody comes along and promises to fix it and says, uh, I can I can do this. It's like a governor of some state. And he says, I can fix this crisis that we're in. I just need some emergency powers. And the people say, OK, here's some emergency powers. Uh, fix this. And then he says, I need some more emergency powers and some more and some more and some more. Until finally he stands in the chariot of state holding the reins of power and he's revealed as the tyrant. And so Plato says that democracy without self-control and morals and virtue of the population will turn into chaos out of which a tyrant will usurp power. And um, anyway, so um, Plato says that this tyrant will institute a structured society. And he is the head of gold and his administrators and military are the arms and chest of silver. Together, they make up the ruling class. And everyone else is the abdomen of iron and bronze, and they are the ruled class. So socialism is a structured society of a ruling class, a deep state, and the ruled class, everybody else. And um, the ruled class are above the law. They're politically connected. Uh, they're supported by the commoners. And they can do things like getting their hair styled when nobody else can. I don't know if you remember that was a story. <laughs> but the, the ruled class, Plato says that they own no property. They have no families. The government decides who gets to have children. And then the government takes the children away from the parents and brings them into schools where they're socialized, which is a process of getting them to give up their parents' values and simply learn how to obey and serve the ruling class, the state. And uh, this is what Plato writes. When the true philosopher kings are born in a state, they will t set in order their own city. They will take possession of the children who will be unaffected by the habits of their parents. These they will train in their own habits and laws. And Plato says that these children will be taught lies. He called them noble lies. He says, we want one single grand lie, which will be believed by everybody. And um, so that was Plato, 380 B.C., talking about this ideal structured society modeled after Atlantis. Well, let's skip forward 2,000 years. Columbus dis discovering America. And back in England, you have Sir Thomas More writes, Island of Utopia. Now, the word utopia means nowhere. It's a fictitious island somewhere off the coast of South America. And... Uh, Moore writes it as a dialogue, which is the way the Greeks did. It's a conversation with a traveler. The traveler's name is Hythlodeus, which means peddler of nonsense. So you have the island of nowhere told to us by the peddler of nonsense. And on this utopia, it's a perfectly structured society with the ruling class and the lower commoners. It has uh, free health care, free identical clothing. Everyone receives free welfare. Everyone lives in uh, identical three-story housing, and everyone eats in communal dining halls with like a mon monastery-type setting. There are no locks on any doors. There's no private property. This is Sir Thomas More's Utopia, written in 1516. All property and goods are stored in a communal warehouse, there are no taverns, no alehouses, no coffee houses. There's no places for private meetings. There is no privacy. Everyone is tracked everywhere they go with an internal passport. And if you're caught without it, it is a lifetime of slavery. The government decides everyone's careers, and everyone has to work those careers the rest of their life. And again, Thomas More's utopia, there is no families. The government 
regulates childbearing and the government takes the kids away and so forth. And anyway, so now we have Plato, we have Sir Thomas More, and then a century later, you have Sir Francis Bacon, 1600s, he writes The New Atlantis. He names it The New Atlantis because he is directly referring to Plato's Atlantis. And on this New Atlantis, it's a fictitious island in the South Pacific, highly structured, uh, you know, more scientific uh, careers for everybody because Sir Francis Bacon helped start the scientific revolution. But the government dictates everything. Someone All right, Bill, we're, Bill, I hate to do this, but we have to take a quick break. And we won't be that long because this is so interesting and it applies to today. And by listening to this, Bill, beyond a shadow of doubt, history is repeating itself. We'll be back on the other side of this break after the news. Don't go away. Welcome back, everyone. William Federer is our special guest this hour, www.americanminute.com. And uh, Bill has a new book out that's available called Socialism, the Real History from Plato to the Present, How the Deep State Capitalizes on Crises to Consolidate Control. And once again, his website is www.americanminute.com. Bill, continue, please. This is very interesting. So we have uh, Plato's Atlantis Sir Thomas More's Island of Utopia, Sir Francis Bacon, The New Atlantis. Uh, someone wrote a farce on this, Jonathan Swift's Gulliver's Travels. Hmm. So here's Gulliver washed up on an island and uh, finds out that it's a highly structured society on the island with a ruling class that is ridiculous and wanting to control everything and a ruled class that they just have to work their jobs and do what they're told. Why is this significant? The Pilgrims. So the Pilgrims were originally a company colony. It was uh, companies didn't exist during the Middle Ages. It was a sin of usury to pay or receive interest. But then when the Reformation happened, uh, you had the first companies. It was the Dutch East India Company where anybody could invest in a boat going to Indonesia. When it came back filled full of nutmeg, uh, you'd get paid a profit. Uh, and if you wanted to sell your interest in the boat, you would go down to the Amsterdam Stock Exchange. They invented that. And if the boat sank or was captured by pirates, that's when the Dutch invented insurance companies. Well, the British started the British East India Company, and you had investors in this company, and it was a win-win for the king. He risked nothing, he spent nothing, but he got a percentage of what came in. And so then there was the Virginia Company, and uh, off of that came the Massachusetts or, or the London Company. And so the Pilgrims were a branch of this London company, and, and the, the company had bylaws. And the bylaws were written by these investors that looked back to Plato, Sir Thomas More, Sir Francis Bacon, and they said everything was co owned in common. So here's the bylaws for the Pilgrims. Uh, this is, again, 1620. All profits and benefits that are got by trade, traffic, trucking, working, fishing, or any other means shall remain in ye common stock. And all are to have their meat, drink, and apparel and all provisions out of ye common stock. And so the pilgrims tried it and almost starved to death. William Bradford, the governor of the pilgrims, said the failure of that experiment of communal service, which was tried for several years by good and honest men, proves the emptiness of the theory of Plato and other ancients applauded by some of latter times. Here are the pilgrims specifically mentioning the emptiness of the theory of Plato. They knew that they were trying to live out this theoretical communal experiment. 
William Bradford goes on. He says that the taking away of private property and possession of it in community would make a state happy and flourishing as if they were wiser than God. For in this instance, community of property was found to breed much confusion and discontent, retard much employment, which would have been to the general benefit. For the young men who were most able and fit for service objected to being forced to spend their time and strength in working for other men's wives and children without any recompense. The strong man or the resourceful man had no more share of food, clothes than the weak man who was not able to do a quarter of what the other could. This was thought injustice. The aged and graver men who were ranked and equalized in labor, food, clothes with the humbler and younger ones thought it some indignity and disrespect. As, excuse me, as for men's wives who were obliged to do service for other men, such as cooking, washing their clothes, etc., they considered it a kind of slavery, and many husbands would not brook it or allow it. Let none argue that this is due to human failing rather than to this communistic plan of life itself. I answer that God in his wisdom saw that another plan of life was fitter for them. So they began to consider how to raise more corn and obtain a better crop so they might not endure the misery of want. At length, the governor allowed each man to plant corn for his own household. Mm. Wow, what a novel idea. Um, so every family was assigned a parcel of land. This was very successful. It made all hands very industrious so that much more corn was planted than otherwise would have been. The women now went willingly into the field and took their little ones with them to plant corn, while before they would allege weakness and inability, and to have compelled them would have been thought great oppression. So here we got Sir Thomas More's or Francis Bacon, uh, you know, uh, and, and Plato, this theoretical, oh, everybody will own everything in common. The pilgrims actually try to live this thing out. Nobody wants to do anything. They're starving to death. They scrap it. They give everybody their own plot of land. And now they have an abundance. And so this um, has been tried. This socialist experiment has been tried and it's failed. Now, the one thing about it is it keeps coming back around this promise of a utopia. Why? Uh, free stuff is attractive. Uh, you know, if uh, if fish could, if older fish could teach history to younger fish, mm -hmm. saying, stay away from sparkly things dangling <laughs> in the water. But they can't. Yeah. And so every brand new generation of baby fish see a sparkling thing and they go up and bite it yep. only to get caught. Free stuff is a sparkly dang. Here's free food, free education, free clothes, free welfare, free health care, free, 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 free. I like free. Free is good. And you go up and bite it and realize there's a hook in there. And so um, the uh, what we see is that uh, when you tell history and you share these stories, it's like, wait a second. And um, anyway, so um, uh, in my in my book, I have some uh, chapters where I. Uh, deal with a couple topics. One is the early church. So a lot of people say, well, in the Bible, didn't all, the early Christian church, everybody owned everything in common? Well, two very important differences. The difference between voluntary and involuntary and church versus government. So the early Christian believers voluntarily sold their land and they brought the money to the feet of the apostles for the church to distribute. They were not forced to involuntarily sell their land and bring the money to the feet of Pilate, the government, to redistribute, right? Whenever the church helps anybody, he wants them to get in the better off so they can help the next person that comes along. Whenever the government helps anybody, it's, it's an exchange for something, yes. right? Back yeah. in Egypt, they won't say, well, you're starving in Egypt. There's a famine. We'll give you a bag of grain, but we want your cattle. We want your land. We want your children. We want your lives. We want to make you slaves forever, right? And um, anyway, now the Bible talks about private property. They go into the promised land and it's divided up and given permanently to each family. If you own property, you can accumulate stuff. That's called being blessed. And you can be moved upon in your heart to give away some of it. That's called charity. And um, Lenin said socialism is a transition phase to communism. 
And Karl Marx says communism can be summed up in one sentence, abolition of private property. So here we have the Bible giving private property to all these Israelite families going to the promised land and telling them to be charitable with it. It's a voluntary thing versus the government involuntarily taking it away and um, redistributing it. And when somebody gets something that's redistributed, there's no gratefulness. Uh, if you get it from a person or from a church, you're thankful you're, and you have a relationship with them. You get it from the government, it's impersonal. And you're not only not grateful, you view it as a debt that is owed to you. This is owed to me. you know. And there's another phenomenon. When somebody receives free stuff long enough, it hurts their self-esteem. And they end up having this negative feeling that they want to channel somewhere. So they end up channeling this negative feeling toward the entity that is making them feel bad the very government that's giving them free stuff. They end up hating the very government that's giving them free stuff. It's an Unreal. interesting psychological phenomenon. And um, is, is that why communism isn't working? Uh, right. Wherever it's tried, it, yeah. it fails. There's a, a couple quotes. There's a president, Calvin Coolidge, and he said, it does not follow that because something ought to be done, the national government ought to do it. So, yes, we need to take care of the poor. Yes, we do. But historically, it's been individuals and churches and then, you know, organizations. That, that, but it's voluntarily you give. It's not the government forcibly taking stuff from somebody and giving it up. There's a quote from President Gerald Ford. He says, people say, why don't you expand that program and spend more federal money? Right. I look them in the eye and say, do you realize a government big enough to give us everything we want is a government big enough to take from us everything we have? So, um, so anyway, we got past the pilgrims, and uh, now we come up to the French Revolution. And... Um, uh, we America has a revolution. France has a revolution. The French Revolution. The um, uh, the motto was liberty, equality, fraternity. Sounds nice. Yeah, it does. Uh, fr fraternity is their word for socialism. It's the fraternity, the collective, the group, right? Mm. And equality can be understood two ways. In America, it was equal treatment before the law. In France, it was everyone having an equal amount of stuff. And if the fraternity, the group, thinks you have too much stuff, it can use the power of the state to take away your stuff and kill you. Wow. Right? And so they, they chopped off the head of King Louis XVI, and then they chopped off the head of all the royalty, and then they chopped off the head of all the wealthy, and then they chopped off the head of businessmen and farmers. You got stuff and we don't, you're selfish. They chopped off the heads of the hoarders, the people that have extra, we don't have enough, you're selfish. They chopped off the heads of the clergy for speaking out against it. And then they chopped off the heads of former revolutionaries and somehow they're to blame. 30,000 people had their heads chopped off in Paris, France. And, um, and then uh, they decided to erase their history. They tore down the statue of good King Henry IV who tried to patch up Protestants and Catholics back in the 1500s. They d dug up the grave of St. Genevieve and trashed her bones. She was the young woman that got Paris to fast and pray when Attila the Hun was not wiping out these cities of Europe. And Paris fasted and prayed, and Attila skipped sacking Paris. So she's the patron saint of Paris. They trashed her grave. They wanted to tear down all the history that France had uh, so they could enter this brand-new um uh, fraternity type of thing. And this is an interesting phenomenon. I have a chapter in my book on this. It's called deconstruction, uh, where you portray the past negatively. So people get emotionally detached from it. And then the people are in a neutral, open-minded position. And then you portray whatever future you're pitching positively. It's a sales technique. So if I was a toothpaste salesman, the first thing I do is tell you a bunch of negative stuff about the toothpaste you're currently using. You're still brushing with that old stuff. Haven't you read it'll eat the enamel off your teeth? You're like, ooh, really? You're repulsed by it. Now I got you into a neutral. You're open-minded. What are all the toothpaste out there? Then I give you my pitch for this brand-new tartar-controlled breath freshener toothpaste. So it's a drive-neutral reverse. This happened in Europe. Hmm. It went from a Judeo-Christian Europe with Catholic cathedrals, Protestant Reformation, and Jewish neighborhoods to a secular Europe with the French Revolution, free sex, anything goes, and now it's turning into a socialist Sharia Europe. 
right? With Muhammad being the number one name for newborns. And yes, the government pays for everybody's education. But if you score bad on a couple tests and you decide later you want to study hard and be a doctor, sorry, the government won't pay for it. Uh, it's, it has determined your career choice. And um, so this idea of getting rid of the past is a necessary part of instituting socialism. It's, All right, Bill, uh, uh, I hate to do this to you again, but we've got to come up to that commercial wall that we just can't jump over. Bill Fetters, our special guest, ExoNation, AmericanMinute.com, and uh, we'll continue this as we wrap up this hour here in the Exxon from our broadcast station, studios, corporate offices in beautiful Crystal Beach, Ontario, Canada, on the other side of this break. Don't go away. back, everyone. Bill Federer is our special guest this hour, AmericanMinute.com. First of all, Bill, I want to thank you so much for joining us. Always a great pleasure talking to you. And uh, do you, if history repeats itself, Bill, and I have no doubt that it does, because the human race is not the smartest, uh, you know, bulb in the pack. Why haven't we learned? Why haven't we looked back at history and seen where we've gone wrong and corrected? Yeah, that is one of those um, strange uh, quandaries, um, and uh, a lot of the uh, writers of the past stress the importance of history, and uh, a lot of those with an agenda want to get rid of the history. Um, you know, one of the things, uh, sort of bringing this all together, that in times of crises, people panic, and they're willing to give up their freedoms to to uh, have to somebody promising to fix it. 500 years ago, Italy was a bunch of city-states, Venice, Genoa, Naples, Florence, Siena, and they, these city-states all had armies and navies and fought. And a guy named Machiavelli uh, thought, well, gee, if one prince could control all of Italy, it would stop the infighting. So his end was good. So he writes a book called The Prince, where he advocates the end justifies the means. So it's such a good end to unify Italy and stop the infighting that any means necessary to get there is justified. Lie, cheat, steal. So if a prince conquers a city, the people in that city would hate him. But if the prince pays criminals ahead of time to kill cows, burn barns, smash windows, set things on fire, the people will panic and cry out for help. The prince will come in, get rid of the very people he bribed to create the crisis. Nobody will know the better for it, and everyone will praise the prince as a hero. So it's Good marketing. You create the need and fill it. You go around the back of the house, set it on fire, go around the front of the house, sell a fire extinguisher. They'll pay anything for it and even thank you for being there. So it's called Machiavellianism, where you create or capitalize on a crisis to consolidate control. Um, it's more recently worded, you never want a good crisis to go to waste. It's an opportunity to do things you thought you could not do before. Rahm Emanuel, who was the chief of staff for Obama. Anyway, so we got Machiavelli. And then we got the early 1800s Germany. Germany was not Germany. It was a bunch of kingdoms, Saxony, Bavaria, Prussia, and they fought. And so after Napoleon had conquered Europe, uh, the king of Prussia said, well, we want to strengthen our state. And he got a philosopher named Hegel, taught at the University of Berlin. And he comes up with a way of taking power from the people, concentrating it into the hands of the state. And it's called dialectics, Hegelian or Hegelian dialectics. And uh, Darwin uh, adopted his ideas, and, um, but a dialectic is a triangle. One corner of the triangle is a thesis. The opposite corner is an antithesis, and the top corner is a synthesis or synthesis. It sounds complicated, but it's not. Uh, in other words, you start off with the status quo. 
you create an antithesis. You create a problem that's real bad. And then everybody's happy to settle for your answer. That's half as bad. So who was a student at the University of Berlin? But Karl Marx, and he was actually a member of the young Hegelians. And so Karl Marx says, well, gee, how do you create a problem that's real bad? You send in agitators, agent provocateurs, community organizers, labor organizers. Their job is to find people with grievances and stir them up to riot. And when the, the panic spreads, people will surrender their freedoms and you can concentrate power. And then that synthesis becomes the new thesis starting point. Then you create another problem that's real bad. And everybody's happy to settle for your answer that's half as bad. Then you create another problem. You keep creating these problems. And each time people give up a little more of their independence to have the, the problem solved. And power gradually goes from the individual to the state. And uh, so the Karl Marx idea is you organize the proletariat against the bourgeois, which is the working class against the business owners. Organize poor against rich, blacks against the whites, Catholics against the Protestants, Muslims against the Christians, Hutus against the Tutsis. You really don't care who the two sides are. And you really don't care what the issues are. You just want a destabilizing crisis that makes everybody panic. Anyway, uh, I, um, you know, fast forward through some ideas, but um, uh, we can't pass up the 1920s. Germany was a republic, the Weimar Republic. And somebody started a party called the National Socialist Workers Party. And it was Adolf Hitler. And his party had a violent arm to it a group of agitators that would uh, cause problems. They were called brown shirts. They were nicknamed Sturmabteilung, which means stormtroopers, because they would storm into the meetings of Hitler's opponents and disrupt the meeting. And then they would lock arms. There's pictures of them locking arms and blocking access to buildings and blocking streets. And then they go into the cities and smash the windows and loot and set on fire over 7,000 Jewish stores in the night of broken glass. And then their capital gets set on fire, the Reichstag. And this crisis makes everybody in Germany panic and they want somebody to come along and fix it. And so Hitler usurps the power. He blames his political opponents for the crimes and he has them round up the censored, uh, ostracized, uh, locked away and shot without a trial. When the dust settles, Hitler has no opposition and he rules as a dictator. So it transitioned Germany from a republic to a dictatorship because he had this violent gang creating problems. Nice guy. After, after World War II, uh, Germany has to give independence to its former colonies. It had some in Africa and the Far East. And France gave up its colonies. Britain gave up its colonies. And these colonies turned into brand new countries with brand new leaders. And it's a promising climbing out of post-war world uh, until the Soviet Union decides it wants its socialism not just to rule the Soviet Union, but to rule the world. And so they would send their KGB agitators into Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, Yugoslavia, Hungary, Romania, Czech Republic, and they would identify groups with grievances, ethnically, you know, Bosnian, Serbs, Croats, uh, religiously, Sunni, Shia, Orthodox, uh, economically. It didn't matter. And they would break them into groups of victims and oppressors, haves and have-nots. And they would organize protests that they would escalate into riots and violence and smashing windows and setting things on fire. And then they would co-opt the media with bribes and threats to blame the new leader of the new country for all of the problems. And hmm. then they would nurture weak links in the military. And when the country got panicky enough, they would do a coup or a rigged election and replace the leader with a Soviet puppet. And the violence would die down for a little while, but when the people woke up, they realized they just gave away all their freedoms, and now they're behind the Iron Curtain. Truman does nothing. Mm -hmm. uh, he thought the United Nations that he helped form would bring world peace, but the next president's Eisenhower, and he's faced with a problem. Iran, in 1953, sides with the Soviet Union, and the leader, Mazadek, nationalizes the oil industry in Iran. And you think, oh, big deal. Well, wait a second. Britain has no oil fields. There's no oil fields in Britain. So in 1908, Britain formed the Anglo-Iranian Oil Company. You know it better as BP. Wow, British Petroleum. And so when the leader of Iran, Mazadek, mm -hmm. nationalized, Britain is suddenly without, here they got a 
worldwide navy that runs on oil and they're having an oil shortage. So they immediately appeal to President Eisenhower and he approves the first CIA operation to overthrow a country's leader. It's Operation Ajax. And the CIA operative on the ground is Kermit Roosevelt Jr., the grandson of Teddy Roosevelt. He goes over to Tehran and he does the same thing. He recruits gangsters and mobsters and radical imams and they stage protests and riots and attack mosques. And they co-opt the media with bribes and threats to blame Mazadek for all the problems. And they nurture weak links in the military. And when the country gets panicky enough, they put Mazadek under house arrest, lock him away for the rest of his life where he dies. And they replace him with the Shah of Iran, who loved America because we put him in. And the CIA did the same thing in Guatemala in 1954. Mm -hmm. In the Congo, the Dominican Republic, even Chile, 1973. And the KGB did the same thing with Brezhnev helping Yasser Arafat to start the PLO and Brezhnev helping Castro to take over Cuba and starting FARC in Colombia and, uh, and then hundreds of coup attempts in Africa. This is called the Cold War. And these tactics have been perfected for 70 years. And... Um, they would even um, implement something they called uh, psychological operations as a part of it. What's that? Well, you um, want to overthrow a country's leader. You co-opt the media. You would actually have the media release false polling data ahead of a coup. So when they did the election and the, and the popular leader lost, they would have these false polling data that, that said the popular leader was really unpopular. Boy, does and that ever sound familiar? And so in America, mm -hmm. uh, the CIA was wanting to uh, realize they needed America to support uh, their foreign wars. And so they created something called Operation Mockingbird. And uh, the Carl guy that, uh, you know, did the, the Watergate, uh, he was the Washington Post reporter, Bernstein, mm -hmm. Carl Bernstein. Uh, he did a 1977 Rolling Stone magazine interview and he talked about uh, how the CIA fed information to all the major news outlets in America and uh, sp specifically on foreign policy issues so that they could sway the public to support whatever they were going to do. Um, now, all of this was done with uh, America's interests in mind, um, but we saw under the previous administration in America where a lot of these federal departments were being co-opted for political purposes. The IRS, the head of it was a lady named Lois Lerner, and she met with the President Obama 147 times. And then she was called to testify before Congress on how the IRS underneath of her was being used to target um, conservative groups. And instead of her answering questions, she pled the Fifth Amendment, which says that you cannot be forced to testify against yourself. She stood up and she walked out. And then we see that uh, the Department of Justice and the Attorney General, uh, that, um, you know, the, they were, were feeding guns to drug gangs in Mexico under Eric Holder in a program called Fast and Furious. He was called to testify before the U.S. Congress, and he pled the Fifth Amendment. And he refused to testify, and he's held in contempt of Congress. And then we began to see uh, a purging of the military of people that didn't go along with the uh, uh, agenda, the, the very um, uh, progressive sexual agenda that was being promoted. Uh, we, we saw a purging of the old guard, so to speak, in all these different federal departments. And... Um, uh, and so um, uh, one of the people that's had an impact on American politics is um, Saul Alinsky. Now, who is he? Uh, he rode around with Al Capone's hitmen in Chicago, Frank Nitti, and saw how all you had to do was kill a few people, smash a few windows, and the whole neighborhood would panic and get in fear and be willing to surrender and pay the mob protection money in exchange for their quote-unquote safety right and so he applied this to politics hillary clinton did her senior thesis at wellesley college on saul alinsky and president obama was a community organizer with the alinsky group in chicago saul alinsky said this the first step in community organization is community disorganization 
Disruption of the present organization is the first step. The organizer's first job is to create the issues or the problems. Hey, Bill, I, Bill, I hate to do this. This is really interesting, but we've got to say so long for tonight. And I'd like to let our listeners know that you can get much more information on the topics that we're talking about tonight. It's all about uh, Bill's new book, Socialism, The Real History from Plato to Present, How the Deep State Capitalizes on Crises to Consolidate Control. His website is www.americanminute.com. That's www.americanminute.com. I'll be back on the other side of this commercial break as we continue here in the X-Zone with yours truly, Rob McConnell, from our broadcast center and studios in... Crystal Beach, Ontario, Canada. I'll tell you something. After listening to Bill with that um, explanation of socialism and uh, coming from his book, I'm telling you, history does repeat itself. Once again, the name of the book is Socialism, The Real History from Plato to Present, How the Deep State Capitalizes on Crises to Consolidate Control, www.americanminute.com. I'll be back after this break. Don't go away. Thank you. 